Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. With support of listeners and guests, we want to find out what's going well and what really requires improvement. I'm Charlie and I'm a primary school teacher and supply teacher and today I am joined by... I'm Tom, a secondary school teacher and a school rep. Uh, Anu, soon to be working in um, the prison offender learning system. Woo! Uh, Lauren, a science teacher in Bristol. My name is Nick. Uh, I'm a humanities teacher and a school rep. You may have noticed that we have not said Lee's name. It is not because he is no longer with us. It's just we felt, <laughs> yeah, it's just that we felt that six people might be a bit much, but we wanted to introduce uh, our new host, Tom. So we just swapped him out, but you will hear from him very soon. So before we start, I do want to say thank you to all our listeners. We have already been really overwhelmed by the people who have listened in, people we know, people we don't know. So thank you so much for the support. It's given us the boost we need to keep going. It already is quite difficult, I think, at times to find the time to do the research, to put all the effort in to make this happen. So having you listening, having you given us your good feedback and your likes and retweets on Twitter is just amazing. So thank you so much. Thanks, guys. We will start with our first segment, Who Requires Improvement, by going round the table to ask everyone who or what this week stands out as requiring improvement. It could be something that small or petty or a significant issue. Whatever it is that's been on your mind this week that deserves a mention. Although this week our theme is conference, it doesn't have to be conference related. So starting with Tom. Oh, I'm up first. Okay, um, well, my first requires improvement um, links to the fact, I suppose, that I now, as of September, work a four-day week. So I'm very on trend, very ahead of the curve here. Um, So yeah, go me. But I suppose it now also means a four-day week is also a 20% pay cut. And thus far, the reality feels like I'm doing a four-day week, but I think I'm getting the four-day pay. I'm probably doing five days worth of work, just kind of squeezed in to those four days. Um, so I think the bigger issue is a four-day week in teaching, in education. I mean, I'm not the first teacher to work a four-day week or a three-day week, but I think where I do stand out is on my day off, I'm not lifting a finger doing anything related to schoolwork. I'm spending time with my family. I think a lot of people are using days off, the three-day week, the four-day week in education to effectively do PPA for free and do the schoolwork they can't manage in a regular five-day week. Um, So that is my requires improvement for this week. Okay, so my requires improvement is around primary testing and just the negative effects it's having on uh, pupils and the fact that um, Labour Conference have announced that they would abolish SATs, which I think is a really positive move. So yeah, that is what I'm going to be discussing this week. Um, My requires improvement this week is going to be... about curriculums and um, just given that we're in Black History Month as well, I'd like to talk about how unfit a lot of curriculums are at addressing um, various histories and various uh, contexts that um, should actually be, well, foregrounded in in a lot of subjects. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. 
Uh, my requires improvement is uh, head teachers who, for some stupid reason, defend <laughs> Ofsted, um, even though it is the thing that makes their lives hell and everyone that works for them makes their lives hell as well. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, my requires improvement is related to Tory conference and it is the Tory Islamophobia. I don't know whether we could say that it requires improvement as in we can expect it to get better or with the whole situation we've improved just by them just not being MPs anymore, not really being in the public eye. But yeah, there was a few panels that were at Tory conference that really highlighted the severity of it and the way that they are completely not take it seriously and in some ways abolishing the idea of it and even, yeah, encouraging people to be Islamophobes while saying it doesn't exist. Mm. Yeah, and, and also it's not going to get reported on, is it, the same way that this anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is, is so ridiculous. Like, the just the bias it exposes is just, yeah. Could they be any better at Islamophobia? I think they're pretty good already. <laughs> well, someone apparently did say there was apparently a, um, like a Muslim... Um, Tory party member who was just in the audience who was literally said um, as a part of his question I'm not quite sure if you're challenging Islamophobia or promoting it and I think that says it all mm, like, yeah. the level of yeah, bigotry that was in the conversation and the lack of seriousness they took to it So what was the actual panel? Because weren't there a few? I, I, there was one that was um, about tackling Islamophobia in education as well wasn't there? Yeah, I think there was. I think the one that I heard this was from a different one, but yeah, there was one about education and just generally like promoting the idea that prevent is good and is should be given more money and encouraged. What they were trying to do was they were suggesting that all Islamic education should be linked to the state and have like a special prevent wing to it because they were linking it to they were saying like all 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 Islamic schools are that are radicalizing kids, so the government needs to have like a really like heavy-handed um approach in regulating them all where does that link in with their kind of defense of religious schools in general because isn't that their criticism of islamic schools linking with their defense of faith schools generally and that idea of just kind of smashing up the education system and having it really fractured and differentiated with free schools academies and all any other different stripe of school you could have well it doesn't link up does it because they aren't criticizing generally faith schools despite the fact that there's huge inequalities within them and the fact that their extra funding causes even more disparity in in different schools and the general effects of what happens when you have religious schools and therefore families who are religious sending their children to the specific religion school nearby and therefore meaning that children are less likely to meet um, other children of different faiths which promotes feeling of difference strangely enough but what's mo- that about most of the faith schools the sort of the failing ones that they they want to take over they're free schools hmm. so they were set up under this plan of like oh we some parents who don't know anything about education can set up exactly their own kind of character of school let's have a military flavored school let's have a oh we don't really want an islamic one but let's do that anyway because we're okay with free schools and yeah whatever um, and then there was some article saying this is why uh, independent schools are rubbish here's seven independent schools that have failed and they're all ones with a specifically um religious character and i'd say again that's because well why have they failed well they don't really go under the same regulatory framework i mean not off that's good but um yeah their aims for education are kind of not really where they should be. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so touching back, does anyone want to bring back on one of their requires improvements so we can add on? Um, yeah, so mine was about primary testing and just basically it's, it's just got to stop. It's too high stakes, number one. I mean, I personally have relatives that, are go, that have just started year seven. So they last year, seeing them both absolutely just stressed out. And they're 11-year-old girls and they're just so stressed out because of these SATs. And it becomes all-encompassing. And why are we doing this to 11-year-old children? What we want to do, primary school should be about igniting that love for learning and actually giving them the most broad curriculum that you can. Like, let them explore everything. Like, children are not going to find their path, their thing that they're good at, the thing that they want to do if we absolutely constrain them into this one-size-fits-all system basically promoting two subjects above all else, English and maths. And I teach science. And that their targets that they've got to hit at the age of 16 depend on what they got at age 11 in their SATs. Now, a lot of primary schools, in my opinion, uh, don't do enough science, to be quite frank, um, because it, it is obvious when you get them in year seven. So it's like, so how are you setting their targets based on something they did at 11 in two subjects, which they're heavily coached for, uh, to the detriment of all of the rest of the curriculum, making kids stressed, hate school, and essentially doing the antithesis of what we should be doing. And, yeah, that's my opinion on, you know, primary testing and it should all be abolished and that's it. But why do you want kids to be illiterate, Lauren? Why do you want kids? Um. If they haven't passed the test, how do you know if they can read? Because they'll read. <laughs> oh, no. Like like, it's funny read. that. No, like. no one's ever been proven to have been able to read without <laughs> doing a test. <laughs> on it as we all know i think uh nick if that is your real name uh, raises a a very good point about the counter arguments being well of course you're gonna you're gonna have to replace it with something how are you going to test and i think that's um that's an argument that's going to come probably from teachers as much as anyone outside of education this kind of conditioning that testing is the way and there, there of course has to be something so it's sats will be replaced Replaced with what? Replaced with nothing? Are they... Yeah, it's got to be something, obviously, but it doesn't have to be that formal testing for everything. Like, if you look at the fact that SATs no longer include science, I think that that's obviously a positive in the fact that it was never going to work in the sense that um, some schools have loads of resources to teach uh, science. Yeah. And therefore, all of these things you've got to know, they've got actual resources so you can see how things melt but it's more than that because <laughs> well no i mean I, I wish, stuff. it's more than that yeah. because obviously because ice isn't too hard but there are some things like um thermometers which break you've got um the things that um directly connect um measurements to the computer which are really good for showing um graphs and things so if schools don't have that then the children are going to find it a lot harder to learn the same things that school with lots of money can learn quite easily so yeah. to test them all as if they're the same just isn't going to work We've got rid of it. Has that made it better? No, because the resources aren't better. The fact that um, uh, children are getting worse is down to that. It's not because there's no test for it. It's because we haven't got the resources. So, yes, we should remove um, the SATs. But the replacement could be something a lot more, you know, child-led, a lot more supportive. And and think about the money that we spend on testing. Like in itself is a very expensive enterprise. So that money that we're saving on just printing the test and actually, you know, doing the whole testing regime, 
we could be spending on yeah resourcing departments and you know i i can attest for all the science teachers out there we know what a resource heavy subject it is and it's not the only one and it does limit what you can do when you don't have those resources so yeah spend the money on resourcing schools please instead of paying for tests and I think part of that is the idea that testing is big businesses and there are a lot of companies out there making a huge amount of money on these tests, on these reforms, on this uh, perpetual cycle of new textbooks. exam specifications, new textbooks. It is, it is a big business. It's, um, it's it Pearson's always learning. Yeah. It's the union joke a couple of years ago, always earning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the tech like it's really interesting. So the curriculum changed like two years ago and we were ordering new textbooks and they were 50 quid a pop. Mm. I'm not even joking, 50 quid a pop. That is fucking ridiculous. There's, um, I was talking to a friend uh, a couple of weeks ago. Her, she's got uh, two, three kids, two of whom are in school um, and one of them's in maybe year one. Um, and she was talking about um, them getting graded on various things that they do during the day. Um, gold stars for things that are good. You know, they get they get put on a chart as well so you have like um a star a star or a sun um you if you've done something well you're on a gray cloud if you've been had a problematic day etc and she said that he brought something home with a gold star on it um for phonics she's like all right well i mean what what's what have you done well he's like oh i just did good in phonics today and she said well that's not it's not a reason to have a goal. What exactly did you do well? Um, so I think there's something around like how these uh, tests also condition your behaviour and the way that the the way that schools and teachers are being told to assess value in kids um, that is really really problematic because it's it doesn't mean anything as well. well. I love it when you get year sevens in um, and they're very well trained from primary school in certain things, and sometimes you're sort of saying, you know, how could we? How can we make, you know, what makes a good uh, bit of writing? What makes a good essay? Hand goes up. Use a semicolon uh, because I've been told that, like, improving things means using a wider variety of uh, of, of punctuation, um, which it doesn't mean if they don't know what good writing is. They don't know yeah. what it is, but they'll try and jam in weird words that you've heard, like polychromatic, because someone said it in a classroom once and they think that's good writing, but they've never seen it written down. They don't really know what mm. it means. They don't have any connection to uh, to reading or poems or anything like that, and and they're terrified of writing because the idea of writing is like um, it's doing an exam because they're terrified of it. And the the, Mike, the Mike, I think the Michael Rosen uh, metaphor for this is really good. Language is like um, a puppy. You give a child this this toy that they can play with and interact with and do things and have a relationship with, um, and then when testing comes along, you say dissect the puppy. Yeah, uh, and this thing that you've learned. <laughs> That you put it in the blender and see what comes out. And that is exactly what we're doing to their love of learning. That's a nice image. Yeah. Well, we, we didn't start Great, to do it. But also, yeah, yeah fits. Excellent. Um... Uh, all right, I've got, I've got the next one. Um, so my requires improvement is uh, heads who defend Ofsted. Um, so on the, there was a Guardian article. Um, so after Labour announced that they were going to... Um, uh, chop Ofsted. I mean, this is something we've been waiting for in the union for ages, and we think you know it's it's kind of been pushing it an open door. Really, once they said they were going to uh, get rid of Sats, it was kind of the next thing that was going to go. Um, but we kind of were expecting for them to have a have something to put up in its place. 
which at the moment isn't there. And I think that's a bit of a strategic issue um, because they just get hammered for it. But what helps the hammering for it is when you have um, head teachers or just TES. So the Times Educational Supplement is just a very, um, you know, there's lots of resources on there, but it's kind of, I suppose, the closest thing to like a teaching newspaper that exists. Um, TES are just, um, they shoot down any kind of progressive ideas like constantly. Um, But in The Guardian, they had, they asked various different teachers and and people um, what they thought about Labour getting rid of Ofsted. Um, And a head, well, sorry, former head teacher, James Pope, um, said, no, we shouldn't scrap Ofsted, um, we should just reform it. Now, you won't have heard of James Pope unless you have, but uh, (laughs) so he was one of the head teachers on uh, BBC. Uh, BBC program uh, school. Um, he was the head of Marwood School, and you know he's not quite a household name, but anyone that's seen that program will know him as the head who was chewed up and spat out by Ofsted. Like this is a it man. Was horrific. Who, it was awful. Like people watching how how tough Marwood School found it during that time, and how he was kind of in between uh, the parents, the kids. Um, Ofsted came in, they, they they failed the school, but what the BBC documented was how him as a head, he had no more resources, dwindling resources, because fewer and fewer kids wanted to go to the school, and yet he was expected to drive up standards. But if he can't drive up the standards, then he can't get a better Ofsted grading. And if he can't get a better Ofsted grading, he can't get any money, so he can't drive up the standards. And he was so he was in such a weird bind over this thing, and he was really, really trying hard. Like people were sympathetic to him because of the difficult situation was he was in, but he was in such a situation of complete mental, a complete mental vice. Where I don't know if anyone else, but this is a bit that sticks out for me for during this was when um, he was trying to work out a way of cutting costs, and he thought of a possible idea, which is merging two classes. So you have one teacher teaching like 60 kids. That was the best thing he could think of at the time. And this is a system that did this to him, put him in his bind. He he lost that job. He resigned from a job he actually quite liked. And then people say, we're going to get rid of Ofsted. And he's like, nah, we'll just we'll just change it a little <laughs> bit. It's complete Stockholm syndrome. It's yeah. utter madness. Why can't you just say? And I suspect it's because now he's not a head. He's got a blog. He's a consultant, well done. isn't he? And he's now an educational consultant. Yeah. And his possibility of getting a job is going to be someone that flies in to help with Ofsted gradings. Possibly he thinks about working for Ofsted one day. But it's just this idea that, oh, we'll just tweak these things. It's like, all right, let's reform the British Empire or let's reform the mafia. Like, these are not things that are worth keeping. These are not things where you can, like, change... Like, the intrinsic nature of them is wrong and they need to go. There's too many problems. There's no point. Just leave it. Um, What does everyone else think? I don't know. Anyone else think we should reform Ofsted? Maybe the mafia, you know, community engaged. Hey, there's some pretty good things about the mafia. not Ofsted, no. Lauren, are you going to say something? Um, yeah, no, I, I was actually going to talk just talk about that watching school, that documentary and how, you know, it was really, it was ho- horrible to watch, you know, and to watch this person go through that. And, and when you think about it, that, yeah, you're right, it's a system. And I, well, I quite like that programme because in a way it actually showed the reality of the situation as opposed to there was this educating series, which was on Channel 4 um, a few years ago. And that was great, actually, but it kind of... So feel good though. Yeah, it was too mm. feel good, wasn't it? Whereas at least this school, it actually addressed the issues of funding and resourcing and what effect that's having on the teachers and the kids. And it didn't shy away from it. And obviously for James Pope, that was, you know, not very good. Um, but yeah, I just 
yeah, it basically was a more real version. Yeah, I've I remember going to conference a few years ago and a lot of people talking about Ofsted as this great terrible thing, which of course it is. But the implication seemed to be they were working in a good school doing great work, and then Ofsted comes in and tells them actually everything you've been doing for years is totally wrong. You're inadequate or you're RI. Um, so I've had really quite limited experience of Ofsted just for moving between jobs just after Ofsted visited. And the most recent Ofsted I had came in and said the management in this school is inadequate. And my response to that was, well, yeah, the management in the school <laughs> is inadequate. Thank you for thank you for now telling us exactly what we know. And it's actually then led to things that are probably in many ways, not in all ways, an improvement in this school. And I think the problem I've got with people like James Pope and head teachers is that they get themselves twisted in these weird contradictory knots. They're almost eating their own towels, trying to do more work to make Ofsted like them mm. and all it's doing is the polar opposite of it. The experience I've had most of my career is we're doing something, I, you as the teachers are doing something, it's not or any pedagogical value and it's not working and response to that is do more of it, do more yeah, of the thing that always. isn't working and maybe this will be the thing that saved me. And I've seen two head teachers come and go and be chewed up and spat out by this system of trying to second guess what Ofsted or some other kind of nebulous other wants to the direct detriment of their own staff. And it's interesting. So I read an article about um, the fact that Ofsted, essentially, it doesn't actually measure how good a school is and what a school's providing for their students. It's basically a measure of affluence. Yeah. And and that's it. And the schools that I've worked in have been not affluent at all. So, you know, it is you're fighting society, you're fighting their upbringing, you're fighting all of the unfairness of the system that's against these kids already. And then you're doing the best and yeah, you know, again, the idea that Ofsted come in and, and yeah, it's totally, I completely agree with the article. I thought it is measure of affluence, not measure of, not measure of how good a school is. Absolutely. I think yeah, it's pretty clear that Ofsted just need to go. In terms of what could replace it, I know this is a whole new thing that maybe requires its own episode and definitely does. Uh, but something I've thought about and I was talking to some people actually when I was at conference, at Labour conference, well, on the fringes of it, um, a couple of weeks ago. Something uh, I was talking to someone about is the fact that as a supply teacher... I know when a school requires improvement Um, because because the first sign is that loads of teachers are going off on long-term stress leave. They always say, um, yeah, well, that's not the first sign, but that's the sign. It's a, it's a clear indicator to me uh, and to everyone else at the school already there. Uh, When you see it, you're sort of wondering why. Uh, they tell you usually the person's off sick and it's only after a little while that you figure out it's stress leave. It's always stress leave. I mean, in my experience, uh, which is a, a reasonable amount. And I think that we should have some sort of system where one, supply agencies are completely run by local authorities and obviously it's, it needs to be much better than it used to be when um, when all agencies were run or all um, supply was run under local authority it needs to be better than that but it also should have something where if a lot of teachers are going off sick more than what you'd expect more than average why don't you send um, some help why don't you send some more support not just replace um, those teachers with a new supply teacher to cover them but send an extra person send somebody who might be an expert in whatever's going wrong because it is a sign and you've got to take that sign and help not criticize and also, why like why is that not in the Ofsted framework? I mean, I'm not obviously I uh, Ofsted needs to go, but surely that should be a measure. 
actually staff health and well-being like yeah that's a massive sign that shit ain't right you well, know they, it needs to be dealt with i think the new framework does have a um a kind of a nod to measuring teacher well-being but i don't know how i mean okay. i'm pretty sure their Thank measure you. isn't right how many staff have you put on a support plan recently how many staff have you um you know are off sick or off long-term sick i'm pretty sure that it doesn't that it's their measure of well-being is how many you know well-being Wednesdays have you got or you know so like what have you got a, have you got do you provide free tea and coffee to your staff I don't I don't yeah. know what the measure is but I'm pretty sure it's not um it's not the kind of measure that teachers are crying out for and and the onerous at the end of the day if you're discovering that um the well-being isn't good the onerous is going to be on the teachers to fix on the support staff to fix it because oh why aren't you feeling good maybe feel happier that would be better wouldn't it cool we've sorted that out well me um so another interesting thing i saw on there's um so ed Durrell, who's the features editor of tez um said well cited this uh yougov report that basically said um uh Parents love Ofsted. So, and he said, Labour are committing an own goal here because they're, abol- they're, they're claiming, to, they're wanting to abolish something that is, they want to abolish something that is uh, actually quite popular. Um, and they're saying that, this is what I, <laughs> they're saying that, uh, they're, they're saying that parents trust Ofsted and there's some statistics that I could have read, but I couldn't be bothered because I've actually worked in a school and teachers hate Ofsted, you know, Teachers, I think, possibly gun-shy about getting rid of Ofsted because they wonder what would replace it, possibly. Parents may say they like Ofsted because it reduces a school's... Like, the internal workings of a school, it re- reduces it to, like, four sides of A4 that they can read with, with, with a kind of one-word thing that, um, that explains it. But, but really, like, two days in a school to, to look it up and down and try and pick out certain points is not that. And also, I do think, when a school gets a bad Ofsted rating... Parents are up in arms because parents actually know the good stuff about the school. Like their kids come home happy. Kids have got mates. They've got they're in clubs or you know they know it's not the best school in the world. But like they like the teachers. Or they have a joke at parents' evening. They feel part of the community and they feel actually quite upset when off. You know it's a bad thing for the whole community when they when the school gets a toxic judgment like that. Um, I was I'm just jumping on that. It really occurs to me how. In independent schools, kids are used to seeing um, men in suits and, you know, women dress very formally. Um, But sometimes in state schools, kids aren't. And I've known children who freak out when a stranger in a suit with a clipboard comes into their room. Like, they don't know what it's for. Sometimes they've had support plans and they've been monitored before. So they assume it that person is just for them or if there's more than one person that they're both just for them. And so if they've got behavioral issues, maybe they, they've, um, they've come a long way with it, but they'll revert to their worst kind of behaviors and have a really bad day because these creepy people <laughs> came into the room. Like, can you imagine trying to see, oh, is this a happy family? Let's send in some people in suits who the family don't know and see if they look like they're enjoying themselves like <laughs> I am um, had an experience uh, a girl that I taught god this must have been five years ago now maybe six um five she was absolutely amazing like top of the class wants to be a doctor and if any student I've taught will do it it's her and we had Ofsted when they were in year 11 
and the Ofsted guy sat down next to her and was asking her about like, so what do you want to do? And she was saying, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor. I want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. Like she literally knew exactly what she wanted to do and how to get there. And and then he was like, oh, well, um, you know, if, if that doesn't work, have you thought about like biomedical science? And And I was like, yeah. And she was sat there like, what and yeah so I kind of came over and he like left and then like he left the room and she went miss you'll never guess what he said to me like and was obviously really pissed off and I was like mate do not listen to that guy like he is wrong and it's stuff like that like you know what I'm saying like some guy in a suit comes in and sits down and tells you like oh no you know you're at really high ambition no, yeah, no limit you're that. probably not going to do <laughs> that because you're going to this fucking rough school so yeah just just take it down a peg or two yeah the, uh, like the- what the best Ofsted story I've heard is uh, a colleague who used to work in a really, really rough school and uh, an Ofsted came in so the kids on purpose were worse because they saw, you know, perceived these people as outsiders. And he said he, there was this, uh, I think he was sort of, I think he was with the Ofsted inspector uh, going into the lesson and the kids were like an absolute zoo in there. And apparently at one point in the lesson, uh, one of the kids came up, just like sat next to the uh, Ofsted inspector, bold as brass, looked him in the face and said, well, this is shit, isn't it? <laughs> 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 and was like, your your yeah, friend was so us. so yeah. proud of him yeah, at that yeah, point. I, yeah. yeah. How Good. could you not love that kid for doing that? It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sharing great Ofsted stories. Uh my friend of mine, um, who was a PE teacher, and after he went back to get his Ofsted report feedback after a PE lesson, and the Ofsted inspector goes, You had one kid just stood out in the edge of the field not doing anything. And the response to that was, but it was a cricket match. <laughs> Should have given her the rules of cricket. Yeah. That is amazing. All right, who do we have left? Do we have me and my four-day week? Yeah. yeah. That okay. Yeah, um, well, I work a four-day week and it's fucking brilliant. Uh, <laughs> worth a 20% pay cut if you can uh, stretch to that. Um, but yeah, but my big thinking around it is I think it is the three-day week, the four-day week, as I said, that is incredibly common in education now. And I think it... The big trend, obviously, I think the big elephant in the room is it is disproportionately women and it's disproportionately women with yeah. children. And nonetheless, they are still also then doing schoolwork completely unpaid. This is free PPA that they're doing, really. Um, mm. So I would advise you all, if you can, go down to four days a week, do it. But I'm confident after a Labour victory, we'll all be doing it within the next few yeah. years. <laughs> so we're living in the dying days of the five-day week. To feel like someone in the Victorian era working on their Saturdays and Sundays. Um, what do we think of this? Absolutely. I think it sounds fantastic to contextualise it in Labour Conference. Um, it was already passed um, from um, the members, I think, came um, put it forward, uh, a Labour Conference for the four-day week to be looked into with the hopes of um, bringing it about over a series of years, even if uh, Labour came in tomorrow, next week, etc. It wouldn't happen Please. immediately. But um, it definitely is something that they would try and transition into. So the idea is basically 32 hours and um, how that would look like could be different in different industries. Uh, We actually hopefully be having Will Strong on this podcast to talk more about that. So we'll go into more details, but I think it's an amazing idea. uh, Because once upon a time, um, it was expected that workers would work 10 hours or more. I think sometimes at 
certain times of history, 12 hours. Mm. And so it was the unions that brought that down to 10, brought it down to eight. And then suddenly we've got stuck. And actually, as our productivity has uh, increased so much, it should be in line that our working hours um, should also be able to be reduced. um, And our pay should also be in line. So you should be getting working a four-day week, as as it were, but then getting paid for a five-day week or, or the equivalent. I think yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. How do we break it to the kids that they've still got to be in for five days while we don't and we can spend more time in the pub and watching films and stuff? Well, I think now you asked that question, you're going into the territory of what I wanted to talk about in the podcast, so I, I'm... Um, <laughs> Cautious to answer your question, but I think actually it should be looked into. Is the answer to have children working um, or in schools, as it were, for five days, or should they perhaps do four days in the, uh, what we formerly consider schools, as it were, the way we see them now, and have fifth day, in maybe factories. sixth day? In the factories, <laughs> no. In uh, sporting activities, in um, community learning centres and things like that, doing something of their own choice um, that sort of related to their interests those are ideas that I've come up with and that feeds in really well to um the whole cultural capital aspect that obviously Annie brought up last episode and the fact is that you know yeah having that fifth day and that time and that space and that freedom to do that stuff is beneficial and you know the fact that you know we're talking about offset now we are inspecting that um so yeah I think that's an amazing idea and kids should have that opportunity to, to be kids and, and experience a bit more. They should want to go to school. That is the key thing. If we can't yeah. make them see, like some bits are going to be hard and you don't want to do it, but ultimately there's a lot of resources there. There's all their mates there. They, there's so many things we could be doing to make them kind of want to be there. And I think the thing with um, schools is, and I think it's the thing we need to hammer home as the National Education Union, first things first, all the time, going back to Annie's point about staff wellbeing is, a teacher's working conditions is a child's learning conditions. Yeah. yeah. So the happier teachers are, the more free time we have to watch a film, read a book, have some sort of input in our life is only ever going to improve our output as teachers. Mm. I think we should get those kids uh, volunteering and in, in the homes of all the teachers um, <laughs> who are only working four <laughs> days a week so that you can actually go to the pub while they clean your house. That would oh, be great. All the I mean, that, that seems a borderline on slave labour, but, but you know, yeah. it's uh, what do they? What what's the favourite phrase of uh, some uh, Tory like character building or something? Oh, it's the big society, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I definitely think that the yeah the idea of the four day week is is so important when you think about. Um, other aspects you know when I was talking before about the stress levels of teachers so many people going on sick leave and then often the result of that is that they quit teaching completely I hope and believe that if we brought about a four-day week for all teachers and I think actually there should also be um, more time for planning I think the current ratio which is like what is it you do half day um, if you work um, five days a week. So that's, you know, one-tenth of... is I think yeah. it's one-tenth yeah. is PPA. Uh, it should be way more than that. I I would personally advocate for something maybe along the lines of 20, 25%. 50%. 50%. 50%. 50%. All right, let's get bold. 50%. Yeah. Uh, why not? But, like, to make sure that the teaching you're doing is amazing. So under those circumstances, let's hope that a lot of really, really quality people are going to want to become teachers and maybe come back to teaching people who might have quit because I know a lot of really good people who've quit over the years um 
Yeah, there's a really, uh, I think I heard at Young Teachers Conference, the statistic that 50% of the profession has been teaching five years or fewer. Yeah. Like that is in itself ridiculous. And it tells its own story about, the thing is the amount of experience we're losing in education is an experience drain from the profession because it's a burnout profession. And it's not a profession that I think you physically can do for 40 years. And that is evidence in itself. I mean, that is really quite astounding. Mm. Um, yeah, talking about this idea of burnout as well. Um, I had a colleague and he would leave at a reasonable hour to go and see his family. And he remember seeing me once. He looked, about, he looked slightly, yeah, well, he looked slightly <laughs> pissed off and I asked him what the problem was. And he said, and he could not work out if this was a conscious thing or not. But every time he walked out of the building, um, his head of department would surreptitiously glance down at her watch mm. as if to make a note of when he was leaving. And now this head of department was no doubt a fantastic teacher herself, but from uh, last I heard, I think she started a family and is now not a teacher. So one, the profession's lost someone who may have been a very good teacher, um, looking at a watch aside. Um, but it's this idea almost like this martyrdom complex in teaching yeah. that to be a teacher is to work hard, it is to be shit, it's to not have a family, it's to not have a work-life balance. And I think there is a strain within teaching that we need to get rid of, which is, I look at all this marking I'm taking home, look at me, it's seven o'clock at night and I'm stood on a table making this amazing wall display, like I'm giving everything for the kids. Uh, this is a scary one. This just reminded me of something I heard from a friend recently. Um, he was told um, by the senior leadership that no one was allowed to leave the premises until all of the displays were up. So if you, for example, take it down a display or one is out, um, outdated uh, because it's a new term, you are not physically allowed to leave the premises, which, quite frankly... Smells illegal to me. Yeah. Yeah. Literally not that job. How is he going to enforce that? (laughs) No, I'm going. Bye. Well, Mm. I said to him, make sure if they ever say things like that to you, just say, could you remind me of that in email? Because they won't. Because they know that those words written down on paper Mm. or on the ether of the internet, um, it just wouldn't fly and it Mm. would get them in so much trouble. So I I think that's something that we should advocate to everyone who's listening. If anyone ever tells you to do something you think they wouldn't write down in an email, just ask them to remind you of it. It's really good. Pro tip. I will action that. (laughs) 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 Okay. Anu, what was your requires improvement for this week? Um, Okay, so... I I want to talk about um, curriculums needing, well, requiring improvement. Um, It's a massive, massive topic, but I think it's a prescient one given we're in Black History Month. Um, So the way I see it, um, decolonizing stuff, curriculums, um, is about decolonizing ways of thinking. So a lot of ways of thinking have been prioritised, not just in schools, just uh, generally, historically. Um, And I think if we're going to go any way to making Black History Month actually speak to um, the the school staff, to the the children, we're going to need to actually go beyond um, a few lessons talking about, uh, you know, black um, struggles. We're going to need to go beyond... um, you know, a few kind of books by uh, black and Asian authors in uh, in, in classes being read. Um, we're going to start, we're going to need to start um, totally turning shit upside down. So 
you know, what is what is history? Whose history are we looking at? Um, I think we're going to need to start thinking about as well. I, I don't think you can decolonize anything. I don't think you can you can get to a point where we're um, appreciating black history is all history if you're also not doing things like um decolonizing the the makeup of um teaching staff you know because just anecdotally um I've heard about um changes in the last school I worked at after um the BAME group was introduced there and how now you have children openly kind of questioning why they're reading certain things um having discussions about uh whether you're allowed to use the n-word when you're reading of mice and men and um you know it, it can you can we say it should we say it etc and, and you know kids being openly emotional about things they're hearing about just because they've been made visible um by a couple of black and asian teachers sort of saying you know we're here we're here to talk about this stuff and to give you a space to talk about it. But you can't rely on a couple of black teachers and a few lessons to to make changes. Um, so I just, uh, I was doing a, a bit of research and um, I've, I've found something um, about decolonising, how we go about decolonising uh, knowledge, basically. Um, and... Th- I can, should I tell you what, what this is on? It's African Skies. So it's a, a website called African Skies that looks at uh, black history and decolonizing curriculums. Um, and there's a really interesting um, idea here, which says, uh, the person that's wrote this article says, I believe decolonization takes us a step further than such concepts as equality, diversity, representation, inclusion as it provides us with a context to confront the structures that necessitate the use of such concepts. So I think, yeah, decolonizing is radical and it needs to be treated as such. Um, and it needs to go beyond the teacher having to um, produce resources um, because it is about, yeah, it's about ways of thinking. It's about knowledge epistemologies. Um, yeah. So I think, there are lots of things that require improvement when it looks to when we're talking about sorry um decolonizing curriculums and it starts with the stuff of lessons but it doesn't end there absolutely i was gonna say like black history month i obviously understand why it's a thing i completely understand why it's a thing but why is it a thing (laughs) do you mean it's just it shouldn't be a separate otherness like a, a separate kind of ring fence part of the curriculum. Again, it should be interwoven. It should just be there. It, you know, as you say about history, well, the world is a big fucking place. Like there's a lot of history. A lot of people have lived a lot of stuff and done things. And guess what? Most of those people weren't white. Um, so that's that's just it. <laughs> and yeah, as you say, like this is a big task, isn't it? You're just literally looking at everything and how we treat it. And, and, you know, yeah, beyond just teachers producing resources. But also it's bigger than that, really. We think about decolonising the curriculum. You know, we live in an in a systemically racist society. And that in itself obviously feeds into this as well. So, you know, these kids, we can decolonise the curriculum, but they're still going to enter a society that is, you know, systemically racist. So, you know, decolonising has to be everywhere. Yeah, so- and we need a white history month <laughs> just to make things fair as well. Um- 
That is a joke. That is a joke, by the way. There are people that say that. People do actually mm. say that, though, but whatever. Um, Those dicks. <laughs> I think um, Anu made that really good point about um, this requires a sort of radical change. Um, and I think well, the first step is I always feel a chronic guilt well, constantly being a teacher. But as, <laughs> as a yeah. history teacher, I feel yeah. chronic guilt. And it's like, oh, look, here's a load of rich white men I'm teaching about again. Um, and it's, well, if I had 50% PPA, my yeah. lessons would be a lot better than they are. That's still great, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about kind of the, the layers of decolonization mm. that will be required. I remember a few years ago, someone got in touch um, with our um, branch secretary and it was about, they wanted to find a story. It was a story about poverty, a documentary about poverty. They wanted to find teachers in poverty. And as far as I know, they didn't have one. They didn't want to find someone who, they work as a classroom teacher and they're in poverty. Because I think the barriers to becoming a teacher, you need mm. a basic level of material le- wealth to become a teacher. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing a PGC, that's... Um, I think increasingly you you will, and I think that is reflected in the makeup of teaching in the school I work in. There are at precisely zero non-white members of staff. Um, I think increasingly every single year teaching becomes a more and more middle-class profession because you do need a base level of material support to become a teacher, and I think the curriculum and education in general reflects the class makeup of teachers. Yeah, and so like just going back to... Um, what Lauren said about how you know, decolonization is a big project, but it it can start it can start somewhere, can't it? And it can start small. So it can start with well, I say small, but it's clearly it's clearly huge. Like the issue of um, recruitment and who we're recruiting into the profession and how we're making it attractive. Um, um, but also within schools, like you know, talking about. Um, you know the unaccompanied refugees that we have in the school that we're all teaching um or trying to with lack of resources and etc um but you know putting them center stage like asking people to talk about like their own stories you know um prioritizing certain teachers stories over others you know if you've got someone if you've got a teacher who's um who's poor or who's black or who's you know I don't know, had a certain experience, you know, give them a stage for a bit. Um, don't just lump it into like one month, one day um, and, and and everyone together. But Absolutely. I think that's a really good idea. Something that sort of reminds me of that and I was thinking about earlier um, when you were talking about how do we decolonise, how do we sort of st- talk about alternative stories. Um, I was at a school very recently, as I say, I'm a supply teacher and I had to sign something at the beginning um of my time there uh it was all sorts of things i'm not allowed to say I, it was it was strange it was almost like i was uh, a speaker's um signing thing uh and i wasn't a speaker i was just a teacher um but right at the top of the list was um you're not allowed to um do, talk about anything uh, that might communicate to pupils um some anything that encourages criminalization or, or criminal activity or um or extremism so I get, like, don't say, kids, you've got to steal things. But (laughs) that, obviously, I'm not going to do. But what it it reminded me of is all the things in history um, that people did that were criminal. Uh, The riots and the push uh, to end slavery Mm. was criminal. Um, There are so many things. Chaining yourself to parliament. Exactly. That's criminal. So actually, what considering 
morality and criminality the same thing is a is a real mistake but it's not a mistake to me to me it's there on purpose yeah. so just in case someone wants to go i want to do a decolonized curriculum i'd like to talk about the actual the real political stuff about black history and your head teacher might go ah but some of those black people were criminals um <laughs> at the time yeah and you go oh then i'm not allowed to do it because by showing so much radical history, by showing all the things that were done, you actually have to say, well, things aren't right now. Maybe, you know, things being illegal doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong. And that's pretty wild and wacky, I think, for senior <laughs> leadership to cope with. Yeah, and And, you know, like they learn about the most brutal, horrific wars that, you know, the most life lost in the most horrendous way. Like, that's fine, like, because they weren't criminals. So we can talk about this really horrific shit. But actually, yeah, something like, you know, people standing up for themselves and, and exercising their rights as human beings or because it was criminal, we can't talk about. Like, seriously, that, that's some cognitive dissonance right there. And every single member of SLT has done an assembly on Mandela. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I was going well. to talk about um, how, yeah, it needs to go beyond them using... The, the black statesmen of the, of the era in the SLT assemblies. Um, but yeah. It's Obama right now, isn't it? Uh, Obama, Mandela. Mandela's still the favourite, I reckon. What a guy to look up to, as in, look up, there's a drone. Yeah. <laughs> you You've that? stolen that, that Jay. He's crying. Yeah. In his war crimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, while we're at it, um, you tend to have quite a few um, black capitalists that are, that are used as you know, icons as well in these in these kind of throwaway assemblies introducing black history. And I think, you know, like get someone who's a bit more critical to create that assembly. Get someone who knows a bit more about it. Um get someone, you know, who who understands that yeah, change isn't neat and um like always violence free? I don't know. Is that controversial? I don't think so. But get get someone who knows their shit. Absolutely. Right. I think we have now managed all our requires improvements. So what I was going to go over now and talk to you guys about is the rest of our experiences of conference. I know I was the only one who was actually physically in Brighton and obviously none of us went to the Tory conference, but I was just... Um, spirit though. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so obviously we've already talked about the positive things about the scrap in the sats, um, abolishing Ofsted. Um, and of course, um, it was also passed through conference to abolish private schools, which I think is amazing. But we talked about that at great length um, in our last episode. So if anyone hasn't listened to that, please give that a listen too. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is that because I didn't go as a delegate, I went to the World Transformed um, Fringe event or Fringe Festival, I should say. And I went to some amazing panels on education. Uh, another one I went to that was really, really good was on youth violence. Um, it was a really strong panel, uh, included a lot of young people. And there were two groups, um, one of which we've mentioned before, No More Exclusions. And again, they spoke really well. And it was really positive to hear what they had to say. And then there was another one that was called Forefront, which is an organisation run by young black people um, who are experiencing violence in their communities. And it's sort of a 
set up by them to support each other, to do mentoring, things like that, and basically educate them and give them the support they need to make sure they can, as much as possible, stay out of violence and also be aware of the dangers um, that are associated with, you know, cops and how they can potentially be the greatest uh, source of violence in their lives. Yeah. That all sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, has anyone heard anything about Tory conference that they thought was particularly amusing or terrible? Is that a joke? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just the Tory conference, full stop. Terrible. Was anything mentioned about education at the Tory conference? I didn't pick up anything. Got the big vibe on law and order. Have they just... They mentioned trying to... Yeah, the only thing I heard of was them trying to couple Islamic education with a branch of the police, effectively. Um, wasn't there also talk of expanding the number of free schools? Yeah. Yeah, um, that stuff. Yay. So they're still flogging that dead so, horse? So, yes. Okay. So I, I think there was like... Oh, actually, no, actually, in Boris Johnson's speech, he did, he did, he, you know, started the backlash against the scrap sat, scrap offstead thing. Right. Which is that he was saying that he was saying that under Corbyn, what Labour want, which is, it's just weird to say that this is what Labour want because it doesn't really, no one would really want it. It's such a weird thing to say. It's like you could say Labour want it to be completely different, which you disagree with, but he says Labour want schools to be shit, which doesn't really make any <laughs> sense. Why would a posh, you know, why, they might be wrong on, they might choose to do things which in the end make stuff shit, but Boris Johnson stands up and says Labour want kids to not be able to read, but he can't give any kind of reason for that. Yeah, they because want, the Tories want, really uh, want kids to be able to read, don't they? Yeah. They want Stannis to fall. Well, I would, I mean... Yeah, I mean, to turn it on its head, I do think the Tories, they want, they don't want a good education system. But they don't want a good education system in the way that we want a good education system. For them, they want uh, workers and employees. Um, they don't really want people that are going to challenge the status quo. They don't want to waste resources on um, doing nice, fluffy things. If they can teach people to do basic maths and do basic English, they can make them work in jobs and then... When they're bored of them, they can automate them. They can just get rid of them. Um, they don't want citizenship education. They don't want kids to understand their place in the world, apart from as part of the British Empire in its kind of nubbin-esque form. Um, they're happy for schools to be recruiting ground for the British Army as well. Um, so I mean, like this decolonising the curriculum stuff is, yeah, great. We've got so far to go when every single school, several times a year, has people coming in, doing army careers talks and... You know, when when you're saying to kids, do you want to go to university, which is really expensive, but it might be fun, uh, but you won't get a job afterwards. Or do you want to have an apprenticeship, which is like working and getting really badly paid, but also having to go to college? No, you don't <laughs> want that. Do you want to join the army and you can fly around in a helicopter and shoot people and you get all this extra money and look how nice I look in my uniform? Like that, that is a big issue. And, if, and, and then, I don't know, I think possibly in November we should do something about uh, militarisation of schools. Um, because it does come up every year. And um, I don't know, last year I started wearing a, a white peace poppy and uh, didn't have any big arguments with anyone yet, but um, it is coming, it's coming. <laughs> Definitely, I think that's, um, yeah, a really good point. Uh, one thing I um, noted about conference that's interesting in the way that it's a bit of a related to Labour's policies currently is that they are saying now that they're going to introduce for 2024 uh, the minimum wage um, to be 
£10.50 an hour, but only if you're 21. So it's coming down from uh, 25 as the minimum wage, um, but still not quite what Labour has already got. And I think now Labour should probably raise their game and say, no, let's make it higher than uh, £10, which is currently for 18-year-olds. But that's the same idea, isn't it? That whole children turning into adults, what is there available to them? Well, very little because, yeah, if they don't go to take any of those options you just said, Nick, then the next thing they're going to have is some sort of minimum wage job. And yeah, the pay isn't going to be even livable on until they are 21. How uh, how old is someone that's going to be 21 at that time? How old are they now? Ooh, uh, there you get me to do some maths. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not even going to try and do that in my head. Five that's years time. Five years time. 16. They'll be 16 so now. They are like year 11s now. We can tell them, don't worry, in five years time... <laughs> You will not be paid less than £10 an hour. Yeah. So you can watch those flying cars, like, fly past your head. And, and you are nowhere near getting one. And the great mm. thing about the Tories is they remember their promises, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> they remember to not do their promises. Uh, so, yeah, another, another delightful policy from the Tories. Um, so I think that's everything that we're going to discuss. I think we've got through a lot of things. I was very... Um, yeah. Again, sm- smashed it again. Smashed it again. Thank you for listening to Requires Improvement. I've been your host, Charlie, and today I've been joined by my co-hosts... Tom. Anu. Lauren. Nick. Please rate us and share. You can find us on Twitter at RequiresPod. And Lee was here as well, by the way. <laughs> <laughs>